most of a bottle in and uh, I'm going to just go polish it off, I think. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. Mickey, it's nearly the end of the semester for us. Are you enjoying the customary flood of emails from stressed out students? Uh, I think that's a trick question, isn't that, Yoel? Uh, I have, I'm not teaching this semester, so of course I'm not getting the flood of emails from students who are stressed out. I am getting, uh, some anxious emails from students who are trying to get into my class. Uh, and, uh, I have lots of sympathy, but our classes are capped and, uh, there's very little I can do. So all you students are trying to get in, maybe listening right now as a way to get in. Uh, the doors are closed. Just stay on the wait list. Hopefully you'll get in. Um, what about you, Yoel? You're, uh, I, clearly you're dealing with many emails. Oh yeah, they're they're coming in fast and furious. It's I've segregated my time now, my email time to be only like a certain 30 to 60 minute segment of the day. And uh I mostly stick to that. And what helps actually is that every time I look at it, it's a flood of anxious student emails and uh, I don't want to deal with that. So I just, you know, I open it and I look at it and I'm like, "Oh my god, no." And I close it and I'm like, "I'm going to deal with that later." So it's, you know, I'm maintaining. I'm barely keeping my head above water. Let's say. <laughs> so, so I just want to make sure I understand the situation here. So when you get emails from anxious students, you have anxiety and your, your, your response is to just ignore it and therefore building the anxiety, yours and theirs? That's right. It's like an anxiety perpetual motion machine. <laughs> How's that working for you? Great. Great. Everything is wonderful. Um, <laughs> Katie, how are you dealing with the flood of student emails? Uh, well, I'm really jealous of um, your 30 to 60 minutes a day thing, and that feels like something that I should work on. Um, so I am not teaching. We're on quarters here at the University of Chicago, and I'm not teaching right now. I am teaching in the winter quarter, and I am getting you know some emails asking to be in my class. I've noticed something about myself, which is definitely in line with the social psych research about how hard it is to say no in person, which is that... It is so much easier to not be in person because if there is ever a student outside my office asking, say, to get into a class when it's capped, something like that, it's basically impossible for me to say no to them. Um, so, you know, that, that is, that is hard. But over email, of course, it is, you know, a little bit, it's a little bit easier, though I do try to admit them if I can. <laughs> I 100% relate to that. Mickey, do you have any problem telling people no in person? <laughs> I'm not completely heartless. Uh, I feel guilty saying no. How about that? <laughs> That's good. That's good. We'll roll with that. Okay, so um, I should uh, introduce our guest. Uh, we're joined today by Katie Kinsler. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, where she's been uh, off and on since 2008. Uh, her research is in developmental and social psychology, um, and she's particularly interested in the judgments that children and adults make based on a speaker's language and accent. Uh, she has a new book out called How You Say It, which is partly about um, the research that she's done in that area, partly about lots of other things that we'll get to. So, uh, Katie, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Wait, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk today. Uh, 
I always want to get into it, and I always forget that we're supposed to talk about what we're drinking, um, and I'm not going to forget this time. So, uh, Katie, as the guest, you get to go first. Sure. So um, I'll note that I did ask permission first um, to have some wine instead of beer tonight. Um, so this is a California cab that I am drinking. Um, it's been a staple of our, you know, our quarantine life, and so that's that's what I'm drinking tonight. Lovely. Um, Mickey, I, I did not ask for permission. I just stated uh, that I was not going to be drinking beer tonight. I was going to be drinking bourbon. And I've been heartened, I have to say, by the outpouring of listener support for the bourbon over beer. I, I would say we've gotten uh, literally two emails saying that uh, the listeners approve. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to it. Um, I'm drinking uh, a Knob Creek right now. This is it. Um, it is. I'm, I'm happy with my choices. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, listen, man, you got to be you and I've got to be me, which means I'm still going to give you shit. Uh, you know, you know, and you you can just feel free to ignore it. Uh, that's fair. Thank you. Which is what you've been doing. <laughs> so, uh, I follow the rules, you know, uh, there, there are rules for a reason when without rules, you have, you know, the war in Vietnam. You well, you know that. Walter knows that. The dude knows that. So uh, I'm a rule abider. Uh, okay, so what I got today? I got uh, something uh, from Fairweather uh, Brewing Company out of Hamilton, Ontario, called Menagerie. And I must admit, the only reason I, I picked this up uh, from the store is that they call themselves uh, a single, th- this specific beer, a single hop pale ale. Which reminds me of like, are, are they trying to do kind of like, you know, what happened with scotch? Like a single malt, yeah. Right, a single malt as opposed to blended malt. Uh, uh, and this is like one hop as opposed to three or four different hops. Like, as if anyone will tell the difference. Certainly not me. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, single hop uh, pale ale and, uh, and the, the hops are citra hops. So uh, should be good. Um, nice. What was the name of the brewery again? It's called Fairweather Brewing Company. Excellent. All right. Well, cheers, everybody. Cheers. And thanks cheers. For, uh, for being on, Katie. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, Mickey, do you want to do you want to start? Yes, sure. I throw, uh, you know, uh, Yoel did that very kindly because you know we we, are, we always have the same first question for our guests, so uh, he gave me an easy one. Um, and that's simply, uh, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about your backstory. So, how did you um, how did you become a professor uh, at the University of Chicago? How did you decide to study uh, psychology? What led you to uh, study what you're studying? What's your academic path? Thanks. Yeah. So um, when I was an undergraduate, I thought that I wanted to study either chemistry or political science. Um, I actually didn't really know that psychology was a field in the way that we study it, right? You know, I had some sort of notion of a clinician, um, which of course is one part of psychology, just not the part that I do. Um, and so I was meeting with someone, it was a, a first year advisor of sorts. And he said, you know, so if you like this, you know, the science of people and, you know, the science of, you know, whatever you study in chemistry. I don't actually know. I didn't go very far in chemistry, um, you know, just my first year, um, that you might really like psychology, you know, the the science of the human mind and studying people. And, you know, I thought that was really fascinating. Um, and I took an intro to psychology class. I started, I took a few more and really liked it. I was actually a cognitive science major, but it was sort of psychology plus some linguistics on the side, basically. Um, and, um, you know, I started working in a lab. I was working in Karen Wynn's lab, who is, you know, who was really a, a, 
an incredible scholar of early, uh, a, a lot of her work has looked at early number cognition in babies. Um, and so, you know, I was in her lab and I thought it was really great. Um, I really liked research. I really liked thinking about the human mind and I really liked asking questions of children. Um, I'll admit that, you know, I love my own children, um, but I, it's not like, I, I didn't go into the field because I wanted to hang out with with babies, which I think is, you know, for some people, they think of a developmental psychologist that you really want to, you know, spend all this time with kids. And that wasn't really my personal driving influence. It was really this idea that you could ask these questions about human nature by looking at these little people and seeing what their thoughts are, you know, seeing what we come in with, seeing how environment shapes that. And so I found that really fascinating. Um, I like to tell students now that I went to grad school for really a terrible reason, which was just that, I don't know, I liked what I was doing and it sort of seemed like I could keep doing that and I didn't really think very much about it or very much about my future. Um, and so I think I was lucky in the sense that I fell into something that I loved, but I do advise students to make sure you really, you know, to really probe that, to make sure this is really what you want to do, because if it's not, a PhD is a pretty long time. Um, and so, yeah, so that's how I got into it. And then I went to grad school and I still really enjoyed it. I started, I moved to more social cognition questions. And so, um, and, you know, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, questions about how language and accent provide social meaning to people and to children really early in life. Uh, our, our viewers, of course, can't see you. Um, but as you're speaking, I just see the excitement in your eyes. You're clearly very enthusiastic about research, and and, and I love that. Um, and I'm going to sneak in another question. So uh, not our last episode, but I guess it would be two episodes, episodes ago. We had a, a, an episode on... Um, we call it, you know, questioning academia, against academia, um, kind of look, examining the pros and cons. Um, without putting you on the spot too much... Um, do you like your job? Do you like what you do? Is this, a, is it, you know, you, you kind of, there's some ambivalence there in terms of what the, what you recommend uh, other, other students, but so yeah, what, what's your take on, on your job? Yeah, no, this is such a great and deep question. Um, so I think for other, my ambivalence for younger students is just that, um, you know, I think that I kind of approached a PhD sort of like, that'll be fun. Like without thinking, you know, and also, I mean, it gave me employment security, right? There is something about the idea that you leave college and you had like, you know, I was fortunate to be in a great fully funded program, right? So it's like I had five years of employment certainty. That's actually, I think that can actually be a positive for a lot of people. And so it's not to say you shouldn't do a PhD if you don't want to be an academic, but I do think for other students who you can find yourself in the wrong fit and it's good to really be sure of your interests and to interrogate them. So as for my job, yeah, I love my job. Um, but I also find myself doing some things maybe that aren't just research, you know, and so, so I love my research in particular. I just have this fantastic group of graduate students. Um, and I, you know, I have from the beginning, I have a few, I have a couple former or several actually former PhD students who are now assistant professors. And that's just, you know, wonderful to maintain that relationship. Um, and then my current cohort of students are just really amazing. And so I find that to be the inspirational part of my job. That's my favorite thing, really engaging with students. Um, but then, you know, I also am interested in writing. And so I see in some ways the book is kind of my job, but it's kind of not my job. Um, I've also more recently been doing some uh, administrative stuff on the side, you know, and so, um, so in addition to 
teaching and research, you know, actually one of the things that I've been working on, um, I work in, uh, you know, as a, a position working, you know, helping in the dean's office, basically, um, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is about uh, facilitating professional development for our graduate students. And so I do think that the academy shifting to some extent in terms of really valuing non-academic pursuits and trying to train students and recognize students' successes, even those successes that are about, you know, skills and um, skills and learning and talent that isn't just quantified in terms of output of papers. And so I do think there's some movement in the field, leaving maybe more possibilities for a broader range of students. Um, at the same time, I also feel the angst of students who, you know, aren't necessarily going to get a job or the job that they want to get. And that's really hard. Yeah, it's interesting. There's one last thing in your story that I wanted to touch on before we um, we go on. So like Mickey mentioned, we did this episode, uh, you know, I guess now a month or so ago, um, and we got some really interesting responses. Um, and uh, one of them was a blog post written by a current uh, grad student who said, you know, well, these guys raised some interesting points, but they're, they fundamentally misunderstand the decision or lack thereof, of, of going to grad school. And kind of what we were talking about, what are like sort of the pros and cons of the career? How should you make that choice? Um, and he said, yeah, for a lot of people, it's just kind of the default. It's just, you've been in school, you've done well at it, and you're like, now what should I do? Shit. Is there any way I can stay in school? And then you just do that, That's right? That's kind of what do I it. did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> But at the same time, it's you're telling your students, don't do that. Don't make the same mistakes I did. Or I'm saying, you know, it's hard to say, like, did I make a mistake? It's hard to know exactly what's a mistake and what's not in hindsight. I'm just saying, you know, I would I would advise people to be more aware than I was. And insofar as, you know, you hear, you know, you guys are talking about this with students, right? That's a service. And I think that in general, people are a bit more... Um, I don't know, reflective and aware of their choices and aware of the structures of, you know, the institutional and societal structures that are around them, right? And so I just think people are a little bit more aware. Um, you know, just to give an anecdote, I was talking to a bunch of University of Chicago students recently um, they, about my book and whatever other questions they had. And one of them asked a question about what could I have done in when I was an undergrad to increase my happiness, that what would I have done differently to have been more happy? And in some ways, it's a hard question for me because I feel like 20 years ago, we weren't self-reflecting on our happiness in the same way. So it's almost like I have to go back in time and update and I can think about, well, what would have been, you know, maybe a better choice or maybe maximize my my long-term fulfillment or something like that. Um, but this idea of reflecting on kind of where am I and, you know, how much happiness do I feel right now that I wasn't in that place at that time. But I think that a lot of students are very reflective now. And I think that's probably a really good thing. I'm all right. I think we should uh, maybe uh, start talking about um, your research, uh, Katie. Um, so uh, it seems like you've been interested in language uh, for a while. So again, kind of getting to the origin stories a bit more. Where did that interest come from? Um, is that something you knew all along? Or is that something that emerged, you know, uh, being exposed to some, some, some ideas? Yeah, where did that come from? 
It was something that emerged. Um, you know, I went to grad school actually thinking that I was probably going to study something along the lines of number cognition in infancy and early childhood. So I'd been working with Karen Wynn, and then I did my PhD with Liz Spelke um, at Harvard, who was, you know, a, again, a really incredible expert on, well, she does a lot of different things. But one thing she was really, you know, that she's really known for is in understanding the core knowledge and, you know, foundations of knowledge and infants. Um, and so, and the summer before I went to graduate school, I was fortunate and had the time, I had the chance to um, spend some time traveling, um, doing a little bit of research and traveling. And I was in the Balkans, I was in Croatia, and then in Serbia and Bosnia. And, you know, I was taking this language class at the time. And my textbook from the US was called Intro to Serbo-Croatian. Um, and then when I got there, of course, um, you know, I was told, well, we don't really say that. We say Croatian or Serbian or Bosnian. Um, and this was on the heels of a civil war. Um, and so, you know, from the former Yugoslavia. And so I was just remarking on the ways in which social divisions and linguistic divisions go hand in hand that when, you know, people and nations split, their language follows suit. And the way you say something says who you are and who people perceive you to be. And so part of that can be, you know, your native language. And part of that might be some more, you know, intentional signaling choices, say you make as an adult. Um, now, what I just described to you is a pretty naive observation that any linguist or anthropologist, you know, could make. Um, but uh, you know, I've, I've noticed this. Um, and then I came back to graduate school and I was talking to Liz Spelke, my mentor, um, and we started wondering, well, do babies know this? I mean, babies don't know anything about the former Yugoslavia for sure or about nation states. Um, but do they have just kind of an early intuition that the way you speak says something about your social identity, that somebody who speaks in a familiar way um, is maybe, you know, kind of approachable or likable, you know, something along those lines, right? And so there'd been a number of studies um, out of, uh, a lot of them were done in Paris um, in a baby lab there. Um, and a lot of the early studies on newborns showed that even newborns could discriminate different languages. So it's like babies right away have this really incredible linguistic facility. They can tell apart the language that they've heard their mother speaking compared to a foreign language. They can even differentiate two foreign languages. So we knew in some senses they sort of had this auditory capacity to tell apart languages and to prefer a familiar sound. But in my initial studies in grad school, uh, we started to say, okay, well, do they start to have some sort of a social preference for people who spoke to them in a familiar way, right? Is this just a preference for language learning or does it kind of generalize to or rub off on the people who were speaking to the babies? And that's what we found. And so I think there is this early preference for native speakers that emerges, you know, early in life. And that's sort of where my research started. Um, now, from there, the story gets more complicated because there's languages that have different amounts of status in society and there's linguistic prejudice and, um, you know, there's bilingualism. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on. But I think, that, you know, the seed of the idea was really this idea that babies start out in life with this uh, social attention to language.
Yeah. So one of my favorite papers of yours that I, I actually knew this paper before I read the book, although <laughs> I didn't know that it was your paper, um, uh, dealt with this, I guess, in a little bit of a different way. And it's about uh, young children's essentialist belief about language. Um, so you look at, you know, uh, young children and older children, and whether they think that somebody's more likely to change races or to change languages. Um, and the young children, kind of mind-blowingly, think it's more likely that somebody's going to change races. So maybe you can tell our listeners a little more about this study. So this is a series of studies that I did with my former student, Jocelyn Dotel, who's now at Queens University in Belfast. Um, and so, you know, just as you said, we were interested in this question about how do kids think about language as being this really sticky internal piece of you that's, you know, such a critical part of your identity that it's going to always endure over time. And in fact, we had some suggestions from past literature that kids might have somewhat of a funny theory of language. And so there are these really elegant studies um, from Susan Gelman and Larry Hirschfeld about kids thinking about language. And so they do that, they, they show kids, this is not my study, but let me just give the backdrop so you get sort of why, you know, we tested this. Um, so uh, Susan and Larry gave uh, kids this task. These are preschool age kids. And they, sh they gave them a switched at birth task. So what that is, is something you tell kids a somewhat creepy story about, you know, a baby that's born, you know, say two babies are maybe switched in the hospital, they go home with the wrong parents. I think more modern, you know, modern versions are maybe something more along the lines of an adoption task. But historically, it's been known as the switched at birth task. So okay. So, I mean, I can't recall the exact vignette they used in this story, but basically they have something like a baby who was born to parents who say speak English and then adopted at birth by parents who speak Portuguese, or they probably had the reverse too. And um, what language will this child grow up to speak? And of course, you know, you might stipulate that you don't see the birth parents again. You're with the adopted parents all the time. Um, and basically what kids report, preschool age kids report that somebody is more likely to grow up to speak the birth language, the language of the birth parents, as opposed to language of the adopted parents. Now, as adults, we know that's not how language is learned, right? Language is learned by being an environment in which you hear it um, or see it if you're looking at a sign language. Um, and so... Um, but it seems like that, you know, if you think about where language comes from or how you would gain access to where language comes from, it probably has a lot of feelings of a biological property to kids, right? They don't remember learning it themselves. You might see a lot of matches, like kids speaking the same language as their parents and so forth. So um, so in my studies with Jocelyn, what we were interested in is whether kids think that language will persist over time. And so we showed them a child who was either white or black, looked white or black, and spoke in English or French, and then two adults. And so one was a language match of the child, and one was a race match, but neither was both. So, you know, tangibly, we'd something like on one trial, you might see a white girl speaking in English, and then you see two adults. One is a black woman speaking in English, and one is a white woman speaking in French. And then the question is, which adult does this child grow up to be? Now, if you ask kids about just language or just race and isolation, you hold the other variable constant, they're at ceiling on this task, that so they can track either variable. But when we pit them against each other, we tested a group, we first tested a group of white kids in Chicago, 
And we found that, you know, we t- when we test kids in the fourth grade, um, so nine and 10 year old kids in Chicago, they thought that, uh, the language, the, the language, sorry, the race would be more stable. Somebody would change their language and they could say things like, well, you know, people kind of look the same approximately when they're kids and when they're adults or, you know, maybe she speaks two languages or maybe she moved and learned a new language, right? So they can kind of articulate something along these lines to you. Um, when we tested a group of five and six-year-old white kids in Chicago, they picked the language match. And so these young kids seem to think that somebody would keep their language, even if it really meant um, transforming their visual appearance. Now, we next tested, oh, so we tested Another group, we second a, a second sample of white kids living in a really homogeneous part of um, of the country. So kids who'd really seen very little linguistic or racial diversity with little kids, and we replicated our Chicago results. So it wasn't something about being in Chicago per se. And then next, what we did was we tested a group of African-American five- and six-year-old kids. Now, these are kids who live in the same neighborhood and go to the same school as the white kids in Chicago. And they looked much more like the older white kids as compared to the younger white kids. And so the five- and six-year-old African-American kids were more likely to choose the race match and to say something like the older white kids did about how um, skin color is relatively stable. And so, you know, I think that when I think about the study, I think that the intuitions of the white five and six year olds are really puzzling and they do speak to this, um, this tendency, you know, to see language as being something that's this really critical part of you. And even perhaps to have a sometimes incorrect theory as the Hirschfeld and Gelman study showed about where language comes from, that it might come from something more, you know, speaking a particular language could come from something more biological as opposed to your environment. Um, and of course, the difference between the white and black kids in Chicago really raises a whole bunch of questions about social environments and social categorization. Um, the, the, the kids that, uh, you examined, were they at all exposed to bilingualism or any of them bilingual? So the kids in that study, no, were monolingual. Um, now we did, Jocelyn and I ran a second study, a follow-up a few years later, um, where we really wanted to ask, okay, like, what about a bilingual kid, right? You know, this seems, if you're bilingual, this seems really obvious. I mean, you know, come on, guys. Like, it feels like they should be able to get this. So what we did was we tested a group of five, white five and six, uh, white five and six-year-old kids in Chicago who were bilingual, thinking, okay, they should, you know, be more likely to pick the race match um, than the language match, as do the older white kids and the age-matched black kids in Chicago. Okay. So first what we did was we tested, this was the same stimuli. So the faces looked white or black and they spoke in English or French. So first we tested a group of bilingual white kids who spoke some language that wasn't French, like English and Russian. I don't know, whatever they happened to, happened to speak. Um, and those kids, didn't they looked like the monolingual kids so they picked the language match so those kids even the bilingual kids thought that you'd grow up to speak the same language um next we thought okay what if you're actively learning english and french and you're tested on the stimuli of english and french and so there's actually a lycée français in chicago and so we found this really great pocket of you know french learning kids. Um, and there we did find that they looked more like the older kids. Um, and so, you know, it seems like bilingual exposure might push this around a bit, but it's not like it's instant. It's not like, oh, you're a bilingual. You all of a sudden have a ton of metalinguistic understanding or something like this. Um, and I think even for many bilingual kids, 
There are many really important ways that language marks social identity. And so your bilingual, it's not like mom always spoke this way. And then like, imagine, you know, imagine you speak Spanish with dad and English with mom. It's not like one day mom just snaps her fingers and starts speaking Spanish if she wasn't previously speaking Spanish, right? And so I do think that it, depending on the bilingual context, and I'd be curious to test kids living in a place where, you know, two languages are really uh, intermingled a lot and pretty much everybody is functionally bilingual, but in a place where you're bilingual, but maybe the surrounding community isn't entirely bilingual, I think you're still getting a lot of input about how much language marks individuals and groups and how it doesn't necessarily change. Yeah, one thing that this study illustrates in a really interesting way, or maybe illustrates is too strong, it hints at, and this is something you talk about a bit in your book, is like, well, we know that humans are evolved to to differentiate in-group and out-group and, and to pay attention to cues. Um, and those cues can be kind of arbitrary, right? So you talk about the famous blue eyes, brown eyes study. Um, and, you know, because socially, race is so important. We think of race as this really fundamental cue. But if you think about the environment in which people evolved these mechanisms, did they encounter people of other races? Like, almost certainly not, right? But they might very plausibly have encountered language as a cue that differentiates our in-group versus our out-group. And, and so maybe it makes sense that this is kind of what these younger children are, are, are latching onto as the more important kind of like uh, signal of who you really are. Yeah, I think you said that really well. Um, you know, I think that in our modern society, race and racism structures so many aspects of our interactions and our society and our institutions, right? You know, as we're all, as people are rightly discussing now, this is really important to grapple with. Um, and when we think about what do kids come in knowing? You know, I firmly believe that kids learn racist attitudes from being in a society that is structurally racist. Um, and as you said, race or differences in skin color across different groups haven't been around for that long in human psychology, you know, and so... You know, this isn't exactly my area, but there are certainly are experts, you know, who have tried evolutionary psychologists and anthropologists who've tried to study this and, you know, proposing that lightness and skin evolved maybe, you know, 8,000 years ago or something like this. And so actually, you know, prior to a lot of long distance migration and, you know, people probably your neighboring group didn't look very different from you. Um, whereas differences in language um, could go back way longer than that. And also languages can change really fast, right? And so back to the, you know, the I started with this observation in, in Croatia and Serbia, but, you know, everywhere language, change, language isn't changing. And whenever you have a rupture of two groups, whenever two groups split and even are just separated by a mountain for a couple of generations or... Uh, or don't get along for whatever reason, they're going to start to sound different really fast. And so, um, you know, language is this cue to your your birth group in some way. The language you learned as a child, when you speak, you're revealing to others who were the what were the voices like that you heard when you were a child. So, so speaking of that, uh, I, I find this so fascinating, and and I know that. Um, one thing that you deal with a lot is not just differences in language, but differences within a language. So, uh, you know, accents. Um, 
And, uh, you know, you, you suggest that accents could signify, you know, very clearly where you're actually from. So, so y'all put a question down here, which I think I, is, it will be so much fun. So I'd love for you to, uh, to guess where, uh, where I am from or where you all's from. And then I can try to guess where you're from as well. This is hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Canadian. Uh, well, I am Canadian. That is true. Uh, and where in Canada did you grow up? I grew up in Montreal. Yeah. And do you, and do you speak French too? I do speak French. Yeah. Uh, but that's my, my third, it's my third language. So my Hebrew and English okay. is uh, what I grew up with yeah. and then, uh, French later. Okay. I mean, there's all these fascinating studies in Montreal in the 1960s that I really see as kind of being the, the origin of the, the accent attitude research. Um, you know, looking at that, and I think it's also really prescient of modern social psychology in terms of seeing how, you know, French Canadian, French speaking Canadians and English speaking Canadians evaluate each other both explicitly and then more implicitly when they're listening to each other's voices. And so that's kind of where all the, the accent research really started in some ways. Cool. I saw this, 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 uh, Research. It was. I think it was a write up in a newspaper. This is like you know twenty thirty years ago. It was an analysis of uh, Simpsons episodes that were that were dubbed in uh, in French for, for for Quebec audience, and they examined the you know who was getting what accent. I mean, because there's variation in French accents as well. Um, Quebecois French is, I think, typically denigrated uh, by uh, in the French world. I, when French people come, they 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 turn up their nose. Um, but so you know, uh, I think uh, Burns and what is his assistant's name? Uh, Smithers. 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 They spoke with like a Parisian French accent. Yeah. But there's a character, Cletus, the slack-jawed yokel. Did they make him Quebecois? Oh, I don't know. Much. <laughs> I think the the Simpsons were Quebecois. Um, kind of lower class, uh, more kind of, yeah, we're, well, at least working class. And I, I found that fas- fascinating as well. Just, you know, and this is done, created for Quebecers. Oh, that's so um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I talk, there's these studies that, um, about, you know, trying to understand children's media and adults' media too, right? Where you see these biases against accents coming out just in the way you're describing. And so if you look just at one, you know, say Disney movie for kids, it's really hard to know, okay, it's an N of one. This person was a little, you know, funny or off and had a foreign accent. What does that really mean? But then, of course, if you add them up across all the movies and you imagine kids being these little statistical calculators, as we know that they are, they're absolutely, you know, seeing bias um or they're they're hearing bias right and then associating um good people with more standard sounding accents now one thing that i think is really interesting in that is that often more people who speak in a way that others consider to be standard they're often the protagonists, but they can also be other characters too. You know, it kind of gets to this dehumanization or infrahumanization literature where I think what you see is that people who speak in what's considered to be a non-standard or a foreign accent are often just given more narrow characters. So it's like, you don't have the full complexity of all the human emotions versus people who are mixed and people who are good and bad. And, you know, all this stuff are often um, people who sound standard. Mm-hmm. So, so you're right about Mickey. Uh, now to me. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I want to say Midwest or California. Yeah. California. Okay. 
You should have said that without the uh, up talk at the end. <laughs> right? I should have been like, I, I can do this. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yes, right. I mean, it's yeah. hard, right? But um, some, some accents are more identifiable than others. Also, though, you know. And Katie, I, I know obviously you're, you're, you live in Chicago now, but is your – I'm I'm terrible with accents, but I do detect a bit of a Midwestern thing going. But but I could be completely off. <laughs> I mean, it could be because I do live in Chicago. Um, I grew up in New York when I was little, and then Connecticut after that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, often what people say, you know, I think that so a lot. Of, so I should actually add this as it's an important aside, which is that everybody has an accent, right? And so it's really you hear a lot. Oh, well, well, I don't have an accent or where are the places in the country where people don't have an accent. And that just doesn't make sense. Because every time you speak, there's a sound to uh, your language. People even say that signers have an accent that you could tell where somebody say learned ASL. Um, as an example. And so, uh, but often in parts of New England and the Midwest, and then I think California is pretty close um, to that in parts too, you have uh, people who say that they don't have an accent, um, but that's that's not true. They do. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, um, Mickey, how are you doing on that beer? I, I would like a refill, uh, uh, if, if possible. What, what about you? You're, 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 you're number three now? or? Well, you know, I started long before we started taping. <laughs> so, yes, uh, most of a bottle in, and uh, I'm going to just go polish it off, I think. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, you can DM us. You can at message us. If you'd rather email us, you can reach us at fourbeerspod at gmail.com. We both uh, check that email address. Our website, as always, is fourbeers.com, uh, where you can listen to any of our episodes and drop us a line there as well if you like. Um, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes um, uh, or sorry, Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Uh, we always enjoy reading those and it also helps other people discover the show. Mickey, anything you'd like to add? Uh, yes, you know, just keep on uh, reviewing us, uh, send us emails. It's it's really kind of fun. We have, I think, started like some uh, 
email relationships with some of our listeners who email us regularly, and it's always uh, a pleasure to hear from them. Uh, they usually give us shit, uh, but uh, in 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 a fun way. So um, drop us a line; we'll 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 likely respond. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to our buddy Alan, who actually in one of his first emails complained that I say like too much. And I didn't know at the time that he was displaying linguistic prejudice, but now I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so so he's going to hear it from me for sure. Um, he might get angry that we're actually name dropping him. He, he he wants to be in the lowdown. I think. Uh, uh, d- does he? Uh, well, you know, <laughs> we'll leave his last name out of it. Alan's pretty common. Um, okay, so Mickey, have I left anything else? Anything else we want to talk about as far as promo? No, I think that's good. Um, I'll, I I I suspect I'm the only one drinking beer, so I can go. Oh, yeah, ahead what and... are we, what are we drinking? Yeah, so I've got. Um, I've got a sour for some reason, which just does not fit today's weather. Today, today's our first first day of snow, um, and I've got a sour. This is a, a collaboration between Collective Arts and Stillwater, and they're calling it a blueberry chocolate coffee and vanilla sour, which sounds terrible, uh, but could also be good. So I'm just going to give it a try. Sounds kind of gross. I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, those flavors don't go together. Yeah. Um, and I'm still uh, drinking the bourbon. So um, that's that's where I'm at. Uh, Katie, what about you? Um, still the same cab. Um, and I've added a seltzer too. I hope that's allowed. We support hydration on the show and healthy choices. Yes. At least I do. Yeah. I don't know about Mickey. Mickey's <laughs> suggestion was like for our next show, he was like, Crazy idea. How about we get completely shit-faced before we record? <laughs> Dude, that's a perfect idea. I think our viewers, our listeners would, would just absolutely love it. They would. They would. I'm not sure I would love it, particularly the day after. So uh, let's talk about, you mentioned bilingualism already in passing. Um, this is something that I'm just kind of personally sort of curious about. I grew up bilingual. Mickey, you grew up, I guess, speaking two languages in the home and then and then learned French in school. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So as you describe in the book, for a long time, it was thought that raising kids bilingual actually harmed them, um, that it slowed down their language acquisition. And then that um, sort of got thrown out. And instead, we started hearing about the quote unquote bilingual advantage, the idea being that, you know, in addition to speaking another language, which is nice in and of itself, obviously, that uh, bilingual uh, children or I guess uh, uh, adults who are raised bilingual have these cognitive advantages that uh, outside of the, you know, specific domain of like being able to speak this um, second or third language. Um, And uh, my impression had been that that had been kind of like walked back subsequently that that was kind of controversial. So I'm wondering if you can update us on what the like kind of state uh, of the debate is right now. Yeah, I think that was a great summary. Um, You know, the historic stuff, if you look back at these old studies, they, you know, found they were in the US, they were in Canada, they were in England, and they found that, look, you know, the monolingual kids were just so much smarter and, you know, better in all ways than the bilingual kids. And of course, the bilingual kids are recent immigrants, are children children who aren't white, like, you know, you see just just a tremendous amount of prejudice and xenophobia coming through, you know, kind of in some research designs. And so that was a lot of the old science, you know, like a long time ago, Um, you know, say, um, you know, prior to 
say in the early 1900s, something around there. Um, so more recently, that's right, there's been a lot of research um, trying to really chart the acquisition of bilingual language development. And I guess I'd say, you know, the quick take home, although you could go into a lot of nuance here, is that kids really can learn multiple languages on just about the same time course as they learn one language. Um, now, some parents might note that their kids' vocabulary seems a little bit delayed in either of their languages, and that's completely normal and not something to be concerned about. And when you think about it, it's not exactly the fairest comparison. And so, you know, your vocab you learn the vocabulary that you need to learn to socially make sense in the world. And so if you speak one language with a parent when you're brushing your teeth, you're going to learn all the, you know, the teeth and toothbrush words in that language. You're not necessarily going to initially duplicate it in your other language. Um, and so that could be one reason why, you know, the per language vocabulary might be a little bit slower. But then also there are some words that you're going to duplicate across languages. Um, and so when you look more at a kid's conceptual vocabulary size, it's going to be, you know, absolutely on target. And so I think, you know, that's kind of thinking about conceptually, what words do they know across both their languages? Um, if you probably double counted words that they knew in both, then it would be even greater for the bilingual code. So it really depends on how you code it. Um, and so then after that, there's been a number of studies showing um you know, some advantages, say, in executive control, cognitive flexibility, um, you know, these kind of non-linguistic benefits of bilingualism. Um, there is some controversy in that field. My own personal take on it is being pretty convinced that the places you see these advantages are places, say, in childhood where there's more variance and, um, you know, Adults, particularly, you know, young to middle-aged adults, there's just going to be a lot less variance and a lot more people are going to be closer to ceiling on these tasks. And so that's where I do find it somewhat compelling that you find the best evidence is the place where it's probably most likely to find differences across groups. Um, that said, what I'm, you know, interest, what I'm mostly interested in, um, in my book and in my own work is something that's a little different from this question about the non-linguistic cognitive benefits, which is really what I see as more about being the social benefits of bilingualism. And so, I, you know, bilingual kids have a lot of practice in linguistic perspective taking. And so, you know, as you both could talk about probably from your own experiences, when you grow up in a bilingual environment, you just have social challenges that a monolingual kid doesn't face. So for instance, you know, kids are good at what researchers call interlocutor sensitivity. So it's this idea of like you respond correctly in the right language to the right person. So you've got that to think about. And then you might be thinking about, okay, well, uh, maybe mom speaks this way and understands me, but you know, grandma, when she talks to grandma, she speaks in this other way. Or maybe we speak this language at home and this language at school or this language in this context, but when we travel here, we speak this other language, right? So there's just a lot of thinking about who speaks what language, who understands what content, who speaks what to whom, how language maps onto social life, right? So you're just getting all of these linguistic, sociolinguistic experiences, which I think can really map on to perspective taking more generally, just practice, you know, in thinking about other people's perspective. And so that's the place where I think about it more as a social advantage. And that's something that, you know, that I've looked at in my own research and other people have looked at too, um, that I think does emerge among bilingual kids or kids who are just exposed to a multilingual environment. Um, the other thing I just nod to, though, I'm happy to pause there, um, is that the other thing that I, I really want to talk about is about how I think a lot of our educational systems are backwards. 
And that's about teaching kids languages when they're better able to learn them. And I'd be happy to talk for a while about that. But I think that there's a bunch of reasons that we don't teach little kids foreign languages. And at least in the U.S., we also do often a pretty poor job of helping kids who speak a non-English language at home, English language learners, to learn language in school. And so I think that we're often misconceptualizing the role and the benefits and the nature of language learning as something that's like icing on the cake as opposed to a really foundational responsibility of education. Yeah, that's. Uh, I actually would love to talk about that. Um, I had this kind of random thought as as I was uh, reading the book, which is that you talk about some cases in which um, children are bilingual of necessity. So uh, let's say they're growing up in the U.S., their parents don't speak English well or at all, and so they're sort of the translators for the parents. Um, so you can think of those families as being, in general, pretty disadvantaged. And then on the other hand, you have the super advantaged, super affluent people who might send their kids to an immersion school, right? So, so my friend sent his daughter to a Mandarin immersion school, for example. Um, and she's now, it's wild. She's like a 14 year old white girl who speaks like fluent Mandarin. And, and they, like he did a sabbatical in China, like with his family, and she would like blow people's minds, right? So, anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, it's just like I get a, a kick out of that. But, it, and then there's this giant middle. Um, of, of children who, if they're taught language in the U.S. at all, it's in high school for, you know, like a couple years where, as you say, um, the window is sort of closed and they will never have a native accent and uh, they face all of the difficulties that adults do in, in picking up a, a, another language, which is tough as an adult. Um, so what is your proposal for how to change this? Um, well, let me go back to just your first group, the, um, say, the heritage language speakers, I'll call them, right? So kids who are learning another language um, at home, you know, you get into all these really complex issues. And one thing that I do want to convey to readers is that I think that maintaining a home language is a really positive thing. So there's evidence that kids feel more connected with their families when they speak the heritage language as well as the local language. And so I don't want fam, I think sometimes families are really nervous. Like my mom tells me this story about how, um, my grandfather's family, um, was from, uh, they were German and, but then they just didn't want to speak any German in the home, right? You know, that there was this nervousness and there was actually, you know, there's actually, um, there's some really, uh, interesting times in U.S. history, you know, tons of instances of xenophobia and anti-German sentiment and whatnot, right? So you can see this, um, but, you can understand how, I guess what I'm saying is you can understand how psychologically someone could feel that way. And here, you know, today you can see so many instances of uh, xenophobia and anti-foreign language bias. There was a Pew Research poll that came out recently. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think it's something, you know, adults in the U.S. were asked, would you feel uncomfortable if you heard somebody speaking a language other than English in a public space? And the answer was like, I think it was maybe around 29 or 30%, something like that, people said that they would. So almost a third of Americans said that they would feel just uncomfortable hearing a language that wasn't English in a public space, which seems completely bizarre because how could that harm you, right? Um, and so I think there's a lot of anti-foreign language bias. Um, and so one thing is just to reassure families who speak a language other than English, I think it's a really positive thing for kids to uh, grow up in this bilingual environment. 
And for all the kids kind of in the middle, as you said, you know, kids whose parents like can't necessarily um, afford to, you know, give them an opportunity to learn a language other than English if the school isn't doing it. I think that's the role of schools. Um, and it's the role of our educational system. And it's the role of us as citizens and parents and um, researchers to really think about the value of multilingualism, to think that, you know, learning a language is something that can happen in addition to all of the other learning that takes place. And of course, it takes resources and paying teachers with expertise in language learning, right? It's not free. Um, but in my view, it's a worthwhile investment. I wonder if I could follow up follow that up a little bit. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a Canadian perspective a little bit. So, of course, we're a, a bilingual nation. Uh, I think more in name than in practice. Uh, what it is in, in actual in actualities, we have uh, the, 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 the most of the country speaks English as, as the dominant language, and they probably only speak English. Um, and then you've got, you know, our second most populous uh, province, uh, Quebec, where they, most people only speak French. Now, of course, in places like Montreal and, and Ottawa and, and parts of New Brunswick, you've got a lot of true bilingualism. Um, but nonetheless, I think across the country, uh, children learn both languages. That being said, uh, apart from those few places that I just mentioned, so Montreal, Ottawa, let's say parts of New Brunswick, um, you don't run across lots of people outside of Quebec who actually can speak French. Uh, they can speak a little bit. They can they can they they can read their cereal boxes because everything's written in both English and French all over, um, but uh, they can't actually hold a conversation despite them learning the language for upwards of you know ten years. Um, and, and, you know, starting at a relatively young age, I'm not sure exactly what age, because uh, I, I didn't actually learn English until in school until grade four, learned French before. Um, so maybe they start learning in grade four, I'm not sure. But it seems to me that a, a big problem is, you know, despite all the theoretical education they're getting, the, 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 the you know, the, the uh, you know, and also the media that they, they're reading, um, they aren't catching the language because they just have no one to speak speak with. And I think, you know, I think what's kind of behind your comment, which is something that's really important for understanding language learning more generally, you know, I often get these questions from individuals. It's like, here's my thing. And I heard this and I heard that. And why does my kid speak this? Right. And usually the answer, it's almost like insert any person in any language question often of that sort of sort is that language is for our social lives and it's for communication. And as you said, you speak the languages that you need to, to socially connect and communicate. And so often parents say in the U.S. who are trying to expose their kids to a language other than English, if the parents understand English and the kid goes to school in English, they could still be learning, right? So their comprehension could be really good in another language, but often they're going to just produce English because that's all they need to, to be understood and to socially connect and to communicate. And so, you know, in that example you gave, of course, there's probably some questions at the margins of, well, at what Age are they starting in school? You know, is fourth grade are those nine and 10 year olds? Well, that's actually not so early, right? Or what's the quantity or the quality of the exposure? Um, who's doing the teaching? How often is it? And so forth. But I think probably the bigger picture answer is what you alluded to, that they, they don't have a social need to speak the language. And then the language, you know, people speak the languages that they need to speak. Um, now, I do think that 
there are so many opportunities, particularly as the world becomes more uh, more international and as there is more uh, more immigration, that there are more social opportunities and business opportunities to speak other languages. Um, and certainly in the U.S., I think there could be many opportunities to speak languages other than English. Um, but I think the general truth is absolutely that people are driven by the social function of language. Mickey, I'm curious, do you speak to your parents in Hebrew or in English? Yeah, that's a great question. I was going to, I was actually going to mention that. I, my entire life, uh, I mean, I, I guess I, once I started speaking English. So Hebrew was my first language. Um, and, but no, I only speak to my parents in English. They speak to me. My, my dad will speak, uh, in English with me, uh, some Hebrew. My mom almost entirely in Hebrew. Um, but my entire life, we, we only ever responded to my mom in English. And I think that's really um, common. And you can get these little conversations, right? To, to an outsider, it's like English Hebrew, English Hebrew, right? And it sounds funny, but to you, it's completely natural, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Mm-hmm. Um, I do regret it a little bit because my understanding is, I mean, I understand Hebrew perfectly uh, or near perfectly. Um but uh, my production is not nearly as good as it could be, so I wish I was forced to speak Hebrew. Um, you know, you know, <laughs> little me, not so much, but 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 older me, yes. What about you, Yoel? Uh, yeah, I speak to my parents only in English now, um, and I, I spoke German with them uh, up until I was probably like six or seven. And and then the problem is that uh, then I had siblings and we spoke to each other in English, and it sort of eventually became that we only spoke English at home. Um, and I was actually I noticed this. It was just a little aside in your book about a woman that you know who grew up speaking Chinese in the home, who then later took classes yeah. to look. <laughs> and I would love that, you know, because I I was the same thing. I could be like, you know. Um, I want more cereal or whatever, yeah. but if it's talking about, you know, science or politics uh-huh. or like really anything complicated, yeah. uh, I I feel so much more comfortable in English. Yeah, that was so, yeah. So that was one of my college roommates, uh, Joey, whom I did ask if I could tell the story in the book. And she said, yes. Yeah, so thank you, Joey. Um, and yeah, I mean, she says that when she talks to her mom, she's like, I sound like a two-year-old. Like I only know the, like the little kids stuff, you know, and then her mom her mom's English. So they would have sort of a mix of languages, but, you know, it was complicated. And so, yeah, so she took some, um, she took a class in college that was actually for kids. You know, there, it was a big enough cohort of kids who had some sort of a similar experience as her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think one of the other kind of things that held me back from speaking a bit more, um, so my, my Hebrew is not great right now because I don't speak it very often, but uh, there was a period where I spoke it a lot more and uh, even I was... Uh, after college, I, I went on a kibbutz for in Israel for for like four months, and my my Hebrew was like I probably the top uh, top form then. But even then, at my best, my Hebrew at my best, I was still not me. I was still not myself. Um, and the places where I noticed it were like with joking, um, joking around. I could not joke around. It was just like you know I could just string the sentence. Maybe I would even have a little bit of slang in there if I was lucky, but I could never, I could not have any humor whatsoever. And, and I just didn't feel like myself. Yeah. Yeah. I tell another story in the book about a colleague in grad school. She was a postdoc, Lola, who, you know, said, she said to me, 
I just, you don't know me. Like, I'm not funny in English, you know, because like it wasn't her first language. And so, you know, she's like, you just can't, you're not connecting with me or you're not hearing me in the way that I feel like I am on the inside, you know, and that really stuck with me too. Of course, I actually did think she was very funny in English. And so, um, so of course, our perceptions and other people's perceptions can differ. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's all this fascinating research about bilinguals um, who have different feelings of personality and different emotional experiences and even different autobiographical memories, depending on which language they're speaking in that, you know, the memories that kind of come to you as feeling like your sense of self might be somewhat different depending on the language context that you're in. Right. So I am keeping an eye on the time here. And I realize that we don't, uh, you know, have you for that much longer. There's one more thing that that I would love to talk about because I thought it was just such a a wild story um, that that you describe in the book, and this is about the emergence of a new language in real time, and that's Nicaraguan sign language. And this just story just sort of blew my mind, and I I wonder if you could tell it because I don't want to like you know half ass it and and ruin it. So I'll just throw it to you to to talk about this like really remarkable uh, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I'm glad you said that because, you know, there are kind of various points of the editorial process where it's like, is this too in the weeds, you know, but I, you know, I think it's just fascinating research. And so, um, so I'm glad that you liked it. Um, So yeah, so I mean, languages languages are changing, right? And so languages are changing at the whole language level that if we went back a thousand years, we wouldn't really be able to understand English. Um, They're changing at the individual level, like somebody's language over the course of their lifespan can change, or even in the moment you're connecting with someone new, the way you speak can change a little. And new languages are also being born, right? And so so this is the example that we're getting at here. So, um, you know, it's hard to find. It's not like languages are just, you know, jumping up in your city every day and you're noticing them, although there actually are the creation of a number of different sign languages going on currently. Um, So this was a language, is a language in Nicaragua. And in the 70s and 80s, um, there had been, there was a school that was created in the capital in Managua. And there were a number of children who were deaf uh, across Nicaragua. And prior to the creation of the school, there really weren't any services, um, you know, necessarily to help support these kids. And so if you're a deaf child and you're born to parents who don't speak a sign language, and so you can't hear the language that they're speaking, and they can't speak a sign language that you could learn, right? You're at sort of this impasse between parent and child and what tends to develop. And, you know, you could talk about this a lot more. So my colleague, Susan Golden Meadow, has done incredible research on kids like this um, in the U.S. too, who she calls home signers. Basically, they create these little systems of communication. Um, And so, you know, kids will create a gestural system. You can kind of track it. It looks very language-like. It's not just pointing at stuff, right? So you start to see, you know, some complex, some little like two-word utterances. Like if you've got a toddler, you know, kind of like how a two-year-old speaks, kids produce that through their science um, and they create their little home sign system with their families. Okay. 
So that's what each individual deaf child does in their families. So then this school opened, um, and it was a school that had a cohort of deaf students that it, you know, that it took. Um, and the kids all came together. And the school was in the oralist tradition, which is how, um, you know, a generation ago, a lot of places taught uh, deaf individuals thinking, okay, we're just going to try really hard to speak them, span teach them Spanish. Now, these kids couldn't really learn Spanish because they couldn't hear it, right? So it wasn't going to, that, that wasn't going to, that didn't work out very well. But what the kids did do is they interacted and on the playground, each of them took their own little home system of signs and they matched it up with the other kids. And then once you have a group of kids together, it started to turn into, um, into, you know, more and more of a full language. And so, and then what you can do and what researchers have done, um, is look at, you know, and so my colleague Susan is one of them. Um, Annie Sangus has done a lot of this work, um, looking at what happens when the kids come together and then what happens over time. And so then you can see that, you know, you look at the kids, say, who entered the school in the 1980s versus the kids who entered the school in the 1990s versus the kids who entered the school in 2000 and so forth. And what you see is that as time progressed, the language got more and more complex. So if you're a five-year-old entering the school in 1990, your resulting language as an adult is going to be less complex than a, than a child who entered the school in 2000 as a five-year-old, right? So you can almost see these points in time where kids started learning the language, and then it's the younger kids that are kind of improving on the language, making it more complex. And so it's, you know, it's changing in real time and it matters at what point you started to learn it and at what age you were when you started learning it. So one thing this reminded me of was these stories, which might be just totally apocryphal, about twins who make up their own languages. I noticed this is not in your book. Do, do you know anything about this? I don't know anything about, like, off the top of my head about um, the the formal research on this topic, though it seems entirely plausible to me that, you know, it's probably, it's probably not going to be a language. So Nicaraguan Sign Language right now is it's a language, right? Like it expresses all the content that humans want to express. And it's not American Sign Language. It's not Spanish, right? Like it's it's a language that grew up from its speakers. So I think probably two kids is generally not going to be enough to create an entirely new language, you know, taking your case of the ki of the twins, but two kids together, you know, creating some rudimentary forms of communication um, and some, you know, parts of language that is just for them, that seems entirely plausible to me. Yeah, that's that's what I was sort of curious about is like, is it this sort of rudimentary, you know, like very basic grammar, uh, maybe mostly nouns, and then it takes a larger group to really build up that complexity. Yeah. Although I will just note as an aside that when you look at these home sign systems, it's not just nouns. So, you know, it's nouns and it's verbs. Um, and, you know, and then you, and you see negation, like you see, you actually see grammatical structures that are emerging. And what's really interesting is that you often see the same kind of grammatical structure emerging in kids, even in different countries, or even where the spoken language they hear might say have different word orders that you start to see some commonalities in the ways in which home sign emerges. So it's almost like you can see these parts of language that are kind of like what each individual kid comes in being able to do and then you put a whole bunch of kids together and then you see how that creates something new 
Yeah, that's just wild. Uh, Mickey, do you want to uh, get in a last question before we wrap up? Yeah, I do. Um, so I, I find, I, you know, my first time hearing this story, I, I find that fascinating. And as you were as you were speaking, I just I couldn't help but thinking about like, well, what do we? What would be an ideal, you know, you know, form uh, in our world? So, for example, the, the first thing I thought of when you're 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 telling the story was like, well, wouldn't it have made more sense for these teachers to have taught their children American Sign Language? Um, that way there's one signing language out there, but then I thought, well, maybe that is incomplete. Maybe, maybe it's better if we have regional dialects, regional variation, or entirely different kinds of uh, languages altogether. Um, and then from there I got into like, you know, yeah, at one point there were these idealists who, were, who, who put forward this notion of let's develop a universal language, Esperanto, which I think quickly died. Right. Um, so in your opinion, you know, this is tension here between like a lingua franca where everyone speaks the same language more or less versus like regional kind of variation. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I do, you know, tackle this a bit in the book with this idea of well, why don't we just all speak the same language? Wouldn't that just kind of be easier, right? We could all connect and it'd just be so great. Um, you know, I think that... Um, one way to think about it is that's not how humans work and that's not how language works because it's not how humans work, which is to say that humans, um, language follows people's social lives. And we're not just, you know, one group of people without any kind of, um, you know, different groups or different social lives and so forth. So insofar as people have their own, you know, different groups and lives, language is going to follow that. And so I think the more you try to push everyone to speak exactly the same, there's going to be some adolescents who rebel and then speak in their own way, which is going to cause the language to shift slightly. Um, and in fact, often adolescents are kind of the drivers of language change. Um, so, you know, you can go back, like older adults always hate the way that young people speak. Um, but when they were children, somebody didn't like the way they spoke, too. So I think that um, linguistic diversity isn't a bad thing, right? And I think what really needs to change is an acknowledgement um, of the naturalness and the value of linguistic diversity. Um, and so, you know, in my view, I don't think we're going to, you know, push everyone to speak in exactly one way. Um, you know, I do think that helping people learn languages is of value. And so, you know, sometimes I also get this question of something like, well, like, you know, shouldn't everyone speak English in school in the U.S., you know, something like that. And I think language learning is a value. And so I think if, you know, in the U.S., as an example, absolutely, I think that I absolutely think that uh, kids who speak a language other than English should be given support and instruction in speaking, you know, a school language at the same time. Kids should also, kids who just speak English should be given support and instruction in learning another language, too. All right. Well, I feel like I have another hour's worth of questions um, that I could ask, um, but you've given us a lot of time already. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, this was a lot of fun. Um, I, uh, like I was telling you before we started recording, I think, uh, read the book today. Uh, I thought it was super interesting and, and learned a lot. So um, if people want to check that out, uh, it is called How You Say It. Um, yeah, th thanks so much, Katie. Uh, it was really fun. And I just want to 
uh, again for our listeners, like you're very expressive and it, it's just so clear how enthusiastic and passionate you are about, about this stuff. And it's just, it's, just, it's, uh, it's infectious. It's really fun. So thanks so much for, for your energy. It was, it was, it was great. Thank fun. you so much for all of your exciting questions. And thank you for reading my book. That's, uh, I really appreciate it. And I know you got to the end cause you asked a question from the afterwards. So I, uh, <laughs> I really know. <laughs> 